Ladies and gentlemen, let's get smart with C Smart Analytics CEO Ernie Hauser. Ernie, how you doing today, man? I'm great. How about you, Jeremy? I'm doing awesome. It's a Friday, middle of the summer. My kids just got back from summer camp last weekend after being gone for three weeks. So really, really nice to have the full family in effect. Um, I got a business trip to Oklahoma City next week, which I'm very excited about. Various different things. I'll be hanging out in all of the usual places that people go to when they're in Oklahoma City. So I'm I'm doing well. How's your How's your summer going? It's good. Good so far. It's been busy as all get out. Uh, been back and forth out to Colorado Springs and uh, for that uh, CZ conference out there. And uh, we're just getting into the swing of things. I'm going to get to go down and babysit three. Uh, 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 my grandsons uh, tomorrow, nice. and uh, we're just going to have a fun grandpa day because I'll be just me and the, the three of them. Uh, and then, um, uh, and then my wife is going to be doing duty, uh, waiting for grandchild number nine to arrive here. Oh my god, nine, nine, yes. Well, we're, we're doing our part to repopulate the world, <laughs> <laughs> a full houser per se, yes, indeed. You know, I, all I can say is I'm just getting to know you, but I hope at the point when I have three, four, five, nine grandchildren, I have as much energy and positivity as you do. So let's uh, let's get into it a little bit with you, Ernie. So who who are you, man? Let's let's get into your background. Where'd you grow up? I, I think you went to Penn State based on the picture I see behind you. But want, want to hear your story and, and how you got to where you're at today. Well, you know, of course, uh, you know, I have a lot of different roles, like all of us do, right? Uh, and and so, uh, you know, I am a, a Christian. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a husband of 40 years coming up here next month. Congrats! Uh, we get to celebrate that uh, with with all of the crew, which should be a lot of fun. Uh, we're looking forward to that. And um, but I'm also, uh, you know, a CEO, a leader. Uh, a technologist uh, by education, a mechanical engineer, yeah. a sales, uh, you know, really through and through. So like all of us, a lot of different hats, a weird kind of eclectic mix of, uh, of different traits and so forth that most people find very grating, but uh, my wife puts up. <laughs> well, for 40 years or 39 years and 11 months she has, let's, let's hope we can make it another month. Right. Um, so, are you from are you from Pennsylvania? Well, I was born in Baltimore and and via Florida, South Florida, I came to uh Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania when uh when I was in the 4th grade. Um and so I was raised for the most part all of my impressionable years were were in Pittsburgh and uh of course I got there just in time for the Steelers to start having their their decade, right? So nice. uh, got there in time to be a Steelers fan. Pirates actually won a couple of World Series during that time, so that was fun. Um, and so in 79, we considered ourselves the city of champions for a short while. Nice. Um, and so, you know, that, that was great growing up. And then, as you noted, I went off to Penn State uh, for four years there. Out in uh, Happy Valley. So in Happy Valley. This is this is random. The actually back to back guests on this podcast who are both grew up or were born in Baltimore. So, um, oh, that is 
small world. And we we had guests this past week at my at my home from Baltimore as well. So the the universe is telling me something. Maybe I need to get like a, a crab cake for lunch or something like that. I, I think so, it's a must. Some old bay seasoning on some French fries or something. I don't know. But well, now I'm craving that. All I had to do was say it. Um, yeah. But so that's that's awesome. And and you know I've never been to. Uh, to state college PA. I, I have a bunch of friends who went to school there and it really sounds like something that should be on my bucket list is, is going to a football game at, at Beaver stadium when there's a full whiteout. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a big place. So it's right up there next to Michigan in terms of the biggest stadiums that you can be at. And um, so it's quite the experience whiteout or not. And it's a lot of fun. I actually prefer the college football experience and just the vibe over the professional because everybody's kind of laid back and you're paying them resorts of money to do what they do and everything else but it's a whole different feeling when you're going to a stadium with a bunch of kids playing and, and you get different results right so yeah. it's a lot of fun no that's that's neat and not to mention like you know the fall in appalachia is awesome right it it is absolutely gorgeous so you get the colors Although, you know, for the first month, it's September is beautiful in Happy Valley. It's uh, sunshiny and typically 80 degrees, and, and you get some nice warm days in there, too. So it, it, it gives you all seasons, and you get to experience the full course of it during a football season, for sure. Yeah, not not too dissimilar to, to New England, really. Um, you know, yeah. probably just a, a tad warmer, but but nonetheless, you get those those full four seasons, and you can't beat the fall. I mean, my, my, uh, I've talked to my, my dad favorite. about this too. Yeah, me too. If you could just, if you could just mimic that six weeks a year, right. Where you get that perfect idyllic fall from call it mid September to first week in November and just bottle that up and sell it. You'd be a, a very, very wealthy man. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now we have to, we have to give some credit where it's due living on the front range in Colorado. Not all that terribly different. And some fantastic weather in the fall there too. So it doesn't suck. It does not suck here. I'll tell you, it's nice right now too. It's about 70 degrees. So, you know, with that dry heat, perfectly comfortable, it, it, you know, it's, it's pretty dang nice. And when I get done with this podcast, maybe I'll get outside and try to get away from my computer for five minutes, which is very rare these days because I'm a busy guy, just like you, which is a good thing. I'd rather be, be very busy and swamped with work than the opposite. So I had a distributor many years ago when I was uh, just a young buck salesman and he was an old crusty, you know, distributor guy. And I complained about being busy and he looked at me funny and he said, Hauser, the alternatives are grim. (laughs) (laughs) Truer words have never been stated, Ernie. I mean, I I'm with you. I've seen both sides of that. I'd much rather be busy and my phone blowing up while I'm trying to do a podcast. So I'll take it. Um, so tell me you, so you graduated from, from Penn state and, and then what? Well, I went to work for a big company, um, and, uh, went to work for Westinghouse electric, went out okay. to Chicago, Illinois. Um, we, I was already married because I got married the summer before my senior year of college. And, uh, and we were already pregnant when we went out to Chicago. So we show wow. up in Chicago in, in our little car, our little beat up car with body work all over it, still all <laughs> spotted looking and everything and, and didn't have a place to stay. We ended up having to stay with my sister-in-law in our college apartment. 
wow. with her crazy roommate for two weeks until we found a place to live. Moved in there, spent a year in Chicago as an inside sales guy working for uh, uh, Westinghouse. And then we went on to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And that's where I got the entrepreneurial bug bit. I, I, I was selling uh, construction products and, and products for uh, switchgear and, and that kind of thing. But I got into some weird stuff. And um, they, at the time, Westinghouse had a entrepreneurial or intrapreneurial little division that they tried to start up. And it was for energy control and lighting management. It was a okay. tiny little group. They were trying to nurture it and foster it. And um, uh, I became the sales manager and moved back to Pittsburgh. Uh, and little did I know that the whole entrepreneurial idea uh, was great on paper, but it really didn't thrive and work in big companies. Uh, they had a way of killing it at, um, at the time when it was just about ready to break. And so that led me to the opportunity to switch. And I went to work for this little startup company and I was the fourth employee. And we were in an office that was no bigger than the office I'm sitting in now. Four people crammed in and in, in, in chairs. Four months after I started there, we ended up buying a product line from uh, the Westinghouse Defense Division that changed yeah. my life. Uh, we we bought an ultrasonic flow meter product line and okay. uh, dominated everything we did. So I spent the next 25 years of my career making, selling, inventing all sorts of different versions of ultrasonic meters, applying it into new areas and, and new markets and creating new markets and having a great time doing it until we eventually sold out to a bigger company in 2006. Cool. Uh, and I was there. We sold off to Cameron at the time. And um, I was there through 2017 through the acquisition of Cameron by, by uh, Schlumberger. And I lasted about one year before I said, I got to get out of here and get back to my roots. Uh, yeah. So. <laughs> Schlumberger would quite literally be the antithesis of a four-person company or a startup. Yes. And, and, and to be, you know, they, they have an idea of what they're doing. They have their business model, but they're tough on people uh, for sure. And so the day I, I realized that the next thing I was going to do was tell them where in the world I didn't want to go. <laughs> and they would tell me where to go to pick up my next paycheck. I said, I'm not sure I want to play that game at this point. I'd, I'd like to have some more flexibility to go visit my grandchildren and stuff. And, and so I decided to go uh, and, and then went looking for work in a smaller company. And I found it. Uh, came, came to work out in, in Colorado, in uh, Loveland, just north of you. Yep. And went to work for a, a holding company that had a bunch of discrete businesses, uh, half of which were metrology. So I switched over from the OEM side, the meters that we have calibrated, to the mm. calibration lab side of things. And, uh, and we had a couple of other entities. And so on the day before, on the month before COVID hit, the pandemic, and our private equity investor let us know that they were outgrowing us <laughs> and eventually decided to go buy, buy their hobby business. They bought Williams Racing, of all things, nice. uh, an F1 racing team. Um, and, uh, and so they decided to sell us off. We spent two years during the pandemic. Uh, selling off the company in parts and pieces. But the good news is that's what created the opportunity for me and my management team to buy Seasmark. Oh, that's cool. Well, yeah. that's, that's, uh, it, it's fascinating. So, so why don't you tell our audience a little bit about now that I have the Genesis, 
what is C-Smart? And we can talk about measurement and all that stuff, but but what, what do you guys do? So in, in a nutshell, we monitor and analyze diagnostic data from custody transfer ultrasonic measurement stations. And we can do it from anywhere, uh, but we get that data ported in by a couple of different ways and run through those analytics in real time. So hour by hour, we're looking at all the analytics from those stations and detecting, quantifying, and telling people how to fix when errors occur. That's what we do. Hmm. So you sell directly to pipeline companies, to oil and gas companies, to like, who do you sell to? Yeah. So the heart of our business, the, the, the center of the bow tie, as I like to call it, is transmission and storage in that, yeah. in the midstream sector. And, uh, but we extend out on that bow tie all the way to uh, the tail end of the gathering uh, processing stations. So residue gas all the way to end users. Um, and, but, but the core, core business and the majority or the central uh, uh, end of where these ultrasonic meters are is in the transport, transmission and storage sector. So you mentioned that you're basically doing this monitoring in, in real time. And what are you, what are you monitoring? Is it, is it like, oh, there's a big spike downward. We need to alert the customer about this, or they'll be alerted themselves. Is it leaks? Like what, what are these spikes in data that people are looking for? And do they literally have somebody who's monitoring the monitor in real time? So, so yeah, therein lies the rub. Uh, So we have to go back a little bit in time and, and about to, in about 2000 or so, was when ultrasonic meters really got uh, momentum and were becoming widely adopted in the gas transmission sector okay. segment. And um, and and the attraction to ultrasonic meters is no you know, moving parts, uh, a wide turndown range, uh, bigger meters that can handle full throughput uh, down to small. So it gave a lot of advantages. And of course, it was advertised in those days as the perfect meter as every new technology <laughs> is. And, um, and then during the next 10 years or so that all the AGA committees get together and the API committees get together and figure out where the weaknesses really are in these perfect flow meters. And how do we end up allow, uh, you know, making up for that, right? How do we apply them? What rules do we have to follow? How should we maintain them? What should be the different regimes for recalibration or calibration in the first place? And, and, and what are the installation effects and all of those kinds of things. They spent 10 years trying to get to those standards that are, if you're me and describing that, I, I love the guys who build those standards, but for me, it's like gnawing my arm off because it's <laughs> always the common denominator, right? You've yeah. got all of the OEMs, you've got all the users, they all have different objectives. And so you end up trying to get a negotiation to get to at least the base level of what we should be doing and how we should be doing it. But the problem is all these smart stations have an ultrasonic meter has 70 to 80 data points that are not flow. They're path gains and, and velocities and delta T's and all sorts of other things. And so 70, 80 points, we spent a lot of money putting in these smart measurement stations. And then we ignore all that diagnostic information. We leave that all stranded at the station and we look at the flow output and we look at the actual and standard standard flow volumes, and just like we always did for all all stations preceding that, 
And and so we've ignored that yeah, to our detriment. We got a benefit from ultrasonic meters. We went from about 1% LAUF. If I if I treat lost and unaccounted for as our gross measure uh, measurement or KPI of how well we're doing measuring things, we have 1% in the industry according to EIA data, uh, all the way through to about uh, 2000. Then it dropped steadily over the next decade to about 0.4%. And then it's put at 0.4%. So we got the benefit of good meters, generally good meters, right? The uh, USMs are doing a good job, but they're not perfect. If we look at the diagnostic data, we can get down to what those numbers should look like when we're dealing with a large population of uncertainty Mm. station, the station of about 0.35%. We should be able to drive that right down to 0.02%. That's the optimal. Got it. And- and, and that's what we're going for. We're trying to make use of all of that secondary and tertiary data points and how they all fit together. And then we get to play Sesame Street. Which one of these things is not like the other? Which one of these things just doesn't belong? And turn that into a this year making an error of 0.1% or 0.2%. That gives the information to the customer that says, I this is where it fits on my priority list. And now I can schedule that and go fix it based on priority and what I need to do. Let's go back in time a little bit before these smart measurement machines, devices existed. How was this data measured? Uh, well, uh, if you go back in time, we've got, and we still exist, right? A lot of orifice measurements, a lot of turbine meters, a lot of rotary meters. Yeah. Uh, those are those are the fundamental technologies for gas. Got it. Now, this is this is fascinating stuff. Do people typically monitor with video what's happening as well so that they can tie into, okay, you see an outlier on the data. Can you actually see that on the video as well? Um, well, we can't see inside the pipe. So For that's sure. one of the acts, right? Um, and even if we could, we're talking about a gas that's invisible and <laughs> except for the other stuff associated with it. Um, depending on where you are, it could smell bad. So there you go. But uh, uh, but no, you, you really can't get a visual. You've got to use those diagnostic pieces of data to paint yourself a picture of what's going on inside. It turns out that they paint a pretty good picture, though, yeah. of exactly what's happening. And uh, they, they are sensitive and they can be correlated to if you have a database full of uh, of solid calibration traceable data, they can be traced to the to determine the magnitude of those errors when they occur. So we essentially use AI and analytical, you know, uh, customary old age old analytical techniques to quantify those errors and say it's a is this a point one or is this a point five or is this a one percent? Hmm. In, in terms of C Smart, what does what does the team look like today? You know, obviously, you spend a bunch of time out here in Colorado, but you still live in Pennsylvania. Um, what does what does the team look like? What is the the company structure like today? Well, we took advantage of uh, of, of COVID uh, and and ended up becoming a model of what our company does. So we became virtual in mm. 2021. Uh, we gave up the lease of our uh, original office uh, in Louisiana and uh, and went virtual, which fits our company anyway, because we're spread out from 
Pennsylvania when I'm out here, to Colorado, to Texas, to Houston, to uh, 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 Iowa, and to Louisiana. So we're spread mm-hmm. out everywhere. There are 10 of us today. And uh, and uh, we just monitor a pile of uh, ultrasonic meters for a bunch of customers. <laughs> and where is where's the majority of your of your business? Well, uh, U.S. Okay. U.S. Uh, we started here, and it's still kind of ground zero and central. We are monitoring stations worldwide. Uh, we've got a few tick marks uh, around the world in crazy places. We're actually. Uh, doing uh, uh, some monitoring for in Pakistan, of all places, right? Really? Because of course, where would you pick to monitor? You'd pick Pakistan, for well, obviously. Well, uh, obviously. Obviously. Uh, and, uh, and Mexico, and we've got some uh, opportunities and forays in Latin America and beyond. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And when you think about the, the future for CSMART, is it a shift in technology or is it we've got a technology that people need? We're just going to continue to expand our footprint in various different markets. Well, that's a great question. Uh, so we're going to stay centrally focused in the gas technology market. There are certain yep. reasons for that, and that makes sense. We've got a lot of growing room to do uh, in the U.S. There, are, by by my estimation and my count, which is as good as anybody else's that I could ever find, um, if we could talk market studies as a separate topic. But uh, I figure there are about 20,000 ultrasonic meters installed in the U.S. today, mm-hmm. and uh, that makes about 80,000 worldwide. And of those 20,000, if if I have my way, we'll be monitoring 6,000 of them in the short term uh, in the next few years. Uh, so we've got a lot of growing room and a lot of growth to do. But we are doing something unusual. We've done. Uh, I've had the. I've been blessed with the opportunity to do it before, and this is the the probably the swan song for me. Um, <laughs> we are uh, experiencing a paradigm shift. We are really leading the market to shift from the old ways of periodic maintenance and and yep. manual analytics and manually going out and collecting data, bringing it back, spending hours and hours analyzing it. To, to shifting to real-time automated analysis. And that shift is always interesting <laughs> to accomplish and to do. I can say you get a real feeling of accomplishment once you're done. Um, yeah. and, I'm, and I'm sure we're going to feel that. Um, but it, it's beginning already. It's, it, you've seen some really important shifts in the industry from, from gas companies and transmission companies saying, we will never, ever entertain cloud-based services up until about 2017 to we can't get enough cloud-based services. Why? Because they're cheaper and yeah. more efficient. Yep. You know, compute power drives down the cost of, of data um, and Absolutely. systems, and, and it increases uh, competition and frankly levels the playing field for smaller companies competing against bigger companies, which is, which is great. I mean, that's capitalism, right? So, um, you know, that's what you're talking about is core to sort of what I, what I've seen in oil and gas in the past, call it 10 years, but really ramped up in the last five years or so. If you think about, uh, production optimization, or you think about, monitoring of methane emissions. Typically in the past, I like to think of it as 
companies were basically driving a fire truck around looking for a fire. Okay. Yep. And now there's alarms and alerts that say, hey, fire truck, we need you here now. Right. And the benefits that that creates are significant from a safety perspective, from a cost perspective, uh, from an environmental perspective. There's there's so many things. And it's cool. It sounds like this groundswell is not only happening in the production space and the emission space, but also in the measurement space. Um, do you see the type of readings that you have and the measurement space as a whole becoming a little bit more predictive? Are you guys at that point or do you feel like that's coming a little bit later? Oh, no, definitely predictive. So uh, if you analyze our data over the past nine years and look at your average year, 30% of the issues that we find at a station are pre-error. They're going to become error if you don't deal with them now or soon. The advantage of those is I can actually put that in my work schedule and do them when I want to because it's not the emergency it is today. And I can focus my triage or my emergency room attention over on the ones that are creating that million dollar a year error. Yeah. And I can knock that guy down very fast because he needs attention right away. Go ahead and schedule my predictive errors. And what you see is the actual overall number of errors go down. That's not intuitive because we're actually doing nothing to stop those errors from occurring. We're not. We're just reacting, right? Yeah. But the faster you react, there's there's this underlying secondary effect that says you're actually taking better care of your assets and those predictive maintenance opportunities are, are, are occurring. You're taking care of them and the total number of events actually go down. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's great. And and of course, not surprising, right? Once you have the data, there's a lot you can do with that data. And predictive analytics is, is where you get to once you have and trust that level of data uh, and visibility. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sorry. If you put the, if you put the way back button on back in the eighties, when the focus was all on quality control and, and quality assurance and everything else, the, the, the uh, motive uh, or the uh, uh, the saying was, you can't improve a process unless you measure it. It's true. We keep it work. It's like Groundhog Day all over again. We're <laughs> doing the same things. We're living the same lessons 30 years later, 40 years later. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. So, you know, I, I think, you know, a little bit about me. We've, we've chatted a few times before. Um, I started my career as an inside sales guy. So I've always placed a great emphasis and value on lead generation. And even at run a company today in Funk Futures, that helps companies get their feet in the doors that they may not necessarily get in themselves, or at least get them in a little bit warmer and a little bit faster, which leads me to the question for you. How do you get business? I, that's a really good question. So, you know, that ties in, you know, I look at us some days I wake up and I say, man, you know, we're a 10 year old startup and that, yeah. that is largely what we are. Right. Uh, and, and there are all kinds of sayings that I use, you know, uh, if you uh, eventually your ship will come in and it, the trick is to hang around long enough until it does. Right. Yeah. Uh, on that, right. We've survived and we've, uh, we've managed to flourish and, and, and keep doing our thing until that moment when all of those, paradigm shifts and our pushing and the market development all comes together. 
But still in all, that lead generation, that that uh, element of it, we weren't doing a really good job of, and I think we're doing a much better job now. Um, believe it or not, I, I was really blessed because I got introduced via a friend of our, one of our investors and uh, introduced to a guy who absolutely loves to cold call. Now, I need I need to meet this guy. I'm stealing him from you. I'm telling you, he's... <laughs> He's an odd duck. I'm. I'm going to tell you, right? Because how many guys do we know that love to cold call? You've got to. You've got to be able to handle rejection. You've got to be able to handle, uh, you know, all sorts of things. But he does it, and and he does it very well. So, in contrast, we were kind of locked in and talking to the same people over and over, talking to our measurement community, um, which is fine because those are the people that we're working with, and they're very important. But the decision-making isn't always necessarily the measurement community. The sure. ironic thing is they're actually viewed internally in their own company, for the most part, like overhead and and, and all the things to, to hate about overhead, right? Yeah. So yeah. they never get the resources they want. They never get the innovation that they want. They never get the people power that they need. And so they're always behind and always running. But that wasn't necessarily the, the only people that we needed to talk to. So what, what my sales manager has done for me with his cold calling is arranged it. So these days I am spending probably 15 hours a week on conversations with people that we have never talked to before. Cool. And beginning to get traction on that. So it's a fantastic thing. I think we're really making progress. I mean, that you, you better hold on to him because that is a resource that's worth his weight in gold. I am blessed to have I'm not to watch this, this podcast, by the way, just yeah, because you said, that. I'll find him. <laughs> I'll find him. Uh, I have two guys who are, who are incredible. And, and I think they both actually enjoy the cold calling because it's, it's a challenge, right? It is. It'd be so easy if all the calls came to me, of course I'd close them. They'd say, right. But they, they like turning somebody. They like getting somebody who's pessimistic and, and turn them into an optimist and eventually a champion. Um, and I did a lot of that kind of earlier on in my career. And it's, it's very popular and trite to say, I hate cold calling. But if I'm to look back at my career, a lot of the people that I've become friends with in business that I've sold to developed an appreciation for me because I actually cold called on them and convinced them of something and then sold them something and then maintained that account and became an actual human being to them. So I, I can't understate just how important it is. And for me, in the evolution of my career, it doesn't matter where I get to. I could be the CEO someday of a multi-million dollar company and, and probably will be candidly, um, or at least hope to be. But you know, I waited tables. Right. And, and I, my first job, I made 85 cold calls a day. And I did that for a year and a half. And then I had the smallest territory and the fewest, warmest leads at my next company. And still always had this element of you got to hustle, right? You, you got a cold call and you still need to differentiate yourself in some way to just make things a little bit warmer for you. And now that business does tend to come to us more because I've built a little bit more of a brand um, and have more of an established company and have some subject matter expertise in a very niche area, um, I don't undervalue and probably, frankly, overpay for that particular skill set because I lived it. 
And, and it was always hard for me, Ernie, in, in sales situations when I worked for a manager who'd never been in that type of role. So you're exactly right. Um, I look back, you know, in my history, my very first job and the reason, you know, one of the reasons that brought me down this path that that led me to where I am today through all these different events and times and opportunities. My very first job was at 14 years old selling junk jewelry door to door. Really? Now, it, it doesn't get much more cold called than that. <laughs> so I've lived that dream too. Um, and, and. You know, ironically enough, it was not what I would have signed up for when I said, answer the ad in the paper and, and showed up. And I was surprised when I said, oh, you're talking about doing that. Uh, but I tried it and it turned out I was reasonably good at it. And so I did that for a while. Um, but I did that I, while I was at college. I uh, was on the fundraiser squad for these guys that back of me here and, and did cold calling for alumni. Right. So yeah. I had that in my experience and and there is nothing that prepares you for changing paradigms, for pushing things forward than a background in, in, in doing exactly that experience in doing exactly that. It's it's a must, and it's something that I do place a lot of emphasis and value in for for salespeople that I deal with, because it, it just shows like if you can deal with that level of rejection. Like that's going to help you in life. Forget about just work. Life is hard and you're going to deal with setbacks all the time. And yeah, I mean, it's it's not always easy. And, and look, when I would get back on a Friday afternoon from lunch, I didn't want to deal with another four hours of rejection, right? But you, you just get through it. That's your job. And, and that's what you get paid to do. I remember some people telling me when I explained what my entry-level job was at, at Left Hand Networks, making 85 cold calls a day, people said to me, I couldn't do that. And I was thinking, well, you, you could if you had to pay bills and you wanted yeah. to get your career started. You know, uh, I couldn't be a, a lawyer and read briefs all day. Like that, I couldn't be a doctor because I, I get squeamish around blood, right? So there's there's things that I you could you could do cold calling. You don't want to. Well, I think that's partially true, but but I'll I'll give a, a, a different take on that too. Uh, Jeremy and and we had in 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 our in our previous startup we were still small we hired an engineer and he came from a big company and he came into a little company and he it, it was an odd case he had a young family and he was switching jobs and baby at home after one week he came in and quit yeah and in his exit interview he said you people are crazy you expect <laughs> You expect results. Um, I just can't handle the pressure. So I think there is an element. When some people say I couldn't do that, I think there is actually a block that says, hey, maybe that isn't right for you. Maybe that isn't your niche. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe this particular case, right, this cold calling thing, it's 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 more of a niche and more of a not everybody can do it kind of a thing. It really is that 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 Tom Sawyer one in a million unicorn type people that, that just are not part of the general population that thrive in that atmosphere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think athletes tend to do well in that situation. I think people who did work in the food service industry, people who worked in some dirtier jobs, um, just, just sort of deal with it and, and accept it. But we, we can move on off of that. that that's that's fun to, to dive in. I'm, I'm glad we both have some history doing that and that you have such a good resource. And I'm, I'm very, very fortunate to have the guys that I have on my team too, 
Um, Good job. Talk about the future. So see smart, right? You, you got 10 people today. Like you said, you're a 10 year old startup. Do you see your company acquiring companies in the same space? Do you see yourself and your company growing organically? Do you see yourself maybe someday getting rolled up with other measurement, gas measurement type players? Like where, where does this all go if we're looking five or so down your gears down the road for C smart analytics? Well, of course, yeah, we don't know for sure, but, but generally speaking, our plan is that we would either be rolled up into a broader organization and doing the unique thing that we do. We're very, very focused very single threaded. There are folks that do all sorts of other stuff in the in the accounting space, in the flow measurement space that are much, much broader than what we do. Um, but we'd uniquely do our piece very well. So we could sure. fit with another one of those companies uh, as, a, as another asset uh, for things that they do that would really enhance their portfolio. Or we could, you know, go to a different next private equity group because we're growing strong and there's value in that. Um, all those all those things are possibilities yet to be determined. Uh, but the, the trick for us is to hit that growth curve. And, and that's what we're working hard every day to try and get to. Um, I, you know, I mentioned I want to be measuring uh, and monitoring 6,000 meters in the next five years. That's, that's the goal. That's what the goal has been. And that's what we keep working every day for. Oh, I think that would be 30% of the U.S. market, right? So um, right. it would, would put you in a in, in a pretty powerful position if you were able to do that. Um, so something that we like to do on What the Funk, and I'm sure we'll have some fun with this, is I didn't prep you for this, but I'm going to put you on the spot. So we're going to do some rapid fire. I'm going to say a word or a sentence, and you have to tell me the first thing that comes to mind. No holds barred. <laughs> All right. So here we go. Roberto Clemente. The greatest of all time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with a career that was cut short, pretty unfortunate. But uh, what, a, what an awesome guy and, and what an awesome player. Um, yep. And to go as a philanthropist as he did, right? Um, just amazing. Primanti Brothers. <laughs> hard to eat with one hand <laughs> napkins napkins would have been accepted as well that's not fair enough <laughs> um let me let me throw another one out there um the year 2030 wow uh the wake up call. Mm, talk to me more about that. That's interesting. Well, you know, we got a lot going on in our world right now. We got a lot of things that are changing. We've got all sorts of political and cultural upheaval that's going on. Um, add to that then in our industry, right? The energy transformation and uh, um, all the talk that's going about that. Objectives have been set for 2030, 2035, 2050. 2030 is about the time we wake up and say, this is not going to work. What are we going to do now? 
I tend to agree with that. I think we do need, it's probably coming. I mean, we're talking about six and a half years from now, which really yeah. isn't that long. And, and as I get older, six and a half years feels shorter and shorter, right? Cause it's a smaller <laughs> percentage of my time on earth, but you're, you're probably right. Um, that we have ambitious goals with no clear runway on how to get there. Then I think we're all on the same page with, yes, we want sustainability Heck, if we had carbon airplane, carbon-free airplanes, that would be great. But we're not anywhere close to that, right? So, so our dependence on the products that that I deal with, that we deal with on a on a daily basis, is not going to change. In fact, it may just grow. So, as we get closer and closer to one extreme, we're actually going to the other extreme in reality. So, you're probably right about the reckoning that may happen and the wake-up call in 2030. But what generally tends to happen is it just gets punted down the road. So 2030 becomes 2035, and we just say, ah, no wake-up call yet. We'll just sort of keep going the way that we're going. Right That's, tr- That's true, but the, the reckoning part of it and the wake-up call part of it is that we are doing damage right now with these with these goals and these unattainable goals, right, and these lofty goals. The frankly, I mean, let's face it, they're being made by politicians that really don't know. Um, and, and so they're they're wanting to on the plus side they're wanting to set objectives they're wanting to be jfk right saying we're going to go to the moon before the end of the decade and we're going to get there and we're committed to it that's the righteous part of of the argument but the damage part of the argument is we're in the process of telling you know our younger generations our kids and and my grandkids that gas and oil have no future don't go anywhere near that that's dirty it's no good it's downright evil and don't have anything to do with it and we're cutting ourselves off at the past who's going to be there who's going to be there to actually sustain the quality of life that we have in this country number one in europe across the globe and and who gets to pay for that it's very regressive. The, the poor mm-hmm. are going to pay much, much worse than the present day rich. And it's, it, it's just, a, that's where the reckoning comes into play. Mm. I, I, I could see that I could. And I also, I mean, you're a little bit older than me, but didn't this sort of happen in the late seventies and the early eighties where the same vilification was happening um, of the oil and gas industry. And we just sort of, that sort of went away. Well, it, it's true. Uh, but not without damage, right? Uh, yeah. And so what, what happened was actually the oil and gas industry is a little bit more resilient because they go through this seven-year cycle anyway, right? Uh, right. It's the, it's the boom and bust business. It always has been. Um, but I'll give you another example in another area of experience that I had. I've lived through the nuclear, you know, got to get, get nuclear, got to go to the nuclear renaissance, back to the nuclear, got to go and live through those cycles. and with each recurring cycle, we get further and further away from yeah. being able to actually make progress and and uh, and move forward. And it's because of people. It's because of lack of people going in, lack of investment. Eventually, you pay the price for that. And and so it's it's going to hurt in some way. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but it's it's going to hurt in some way. We'll yeah, have I, we will. And and you know, I just think the I don't know. Understand why everything has to be so extreme. Right. I just want to sit down and, and be logical about, about all these sorts of things. But um, so there, there is 
one final topic, Ernie, that I that I wanted to bring up with you, um, and that is you're wearing a tie. Yes. So t- talk to me a little bit about this. Is this just, are you a guy who always wears a tie? Is this something you've done throughout your career? I know most people are listening and not watching, but I find it pretty fascinating because I don't think anyone else has ever come on this podcast wearing a tie besides a state senator that we had on like uh, two years ago. All right. Well, it's good to be unique, I'm going to say. Uh, but yeah, uh, I'm, I'm kind of old school, right? I grew up still in the time. Uh, and came into business in the time when, uh, you know, before, remember casual Fridays before it became casual every day? Of course. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, so I came in and this was particularly in sales. This I viewed as the customer uniform, right? The uniform Mm -hmm. that I wore to show respect to our customers and to say, hey, I went to the trouble, right, of, of trying to dress myself this morning because I'm going to make a presentation or I'm going to have a discussion with you. And even though all of my customers did not wear ties for the most part, it still was a certain sign of respect and presence to say, well, nah, you know, it's important for me to do my part and to wear that customer uniform. When I had people eventually working for me in about, 2006, 2007, I finally gave up making them wear ties. I, yeah. I, I, I finally got to the point where I said, I, I can't really make you do that, but I can <laughs> tell you how I feel, right? And I feel yeah. there's, there is importance to the customer uniform and it is a sign of respect. So Jeremy, when I came on a podcast with you, I had to say, I have to wear a tie as a sign of respect. Well, I'm I'm honored. I will say that. And you know, I I actually I've gone back and forth on this one. And I do dress very casual for the podcast cuz I'm sitting in my house right now. Yeah. So the likelihood is I'm not going to wear a tie. But I think and I don't have the stats to back this up. But in my career, when I've gone into business meetings wear a full wearing a full suit and tie, I think I've done better. I think that I've felt sharper and I think that I've been able to ask for top dollar and I think that I've been better received in the room. So I do think that there is some value in that. And as we get further and further away, it's something that I'll encourage younger salespeople to do, at least until you've kind of made it, right? Which obviously in your case, you have made it and you're still wearing a tie. So I, I do greatly appreciate that. But but yeah, there were points where I, I kind of encouraged my team, like, let's be the best dressed in the room. Um, and oftentimes that means a, a suit and tie. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, we're all victims of our experience. So I, and I, and I will tell, if we got time, I'll, I'll tell one yeah. more story. Please do. We're working in Sequoia Nuclear Power Plant in Tennessee, and we're uh, actually installing a flow meter on the outside of a pipe that's 450 degrees Fahrenheit. Oof. And it is a 30-inch pipe radiating 450 degrees there's a concrete block wall about this far away and i'm standing between a concrete block wall and that 450 degree pipe uh putting on this flow meter we are needless to say drenched in sweat we're wearing coveralls protective equipment so that we don't burn ourselves and everything else and my chief engineer at the time was traveling through he stopped off to see how work was going at the plant before I know it, and and he was a guy. He was also old school. He was one of Rickover's henchmen back in the day uh, before he left uh, uh, the uh, Rickover's work and 
and and joined NPR Associates. But but he came dressed as he always was in his sartorial splendor. He had on a blue suit, pocket square, and tie. And you know, he showed up in the plant. In those days, you could walk into the turbine building without any security. <laughs> it was amazing. But he climbs up this scaffolding that's about 12 feet in the air in his suit and starts looking and seeing what's going on in the pipe and, you know, asking questions and everything else. And I'm, I'm looking at him and saying, hey, at least take off your coat. And he looked at me and he wagged his finger and he said, let me tell you something. Now let him see you sweat. <laughs> that That's funny. <laughs> So the least I could do is wear a tie, right? <laughs> I'll tell you, man, you'll see me sweat if I'm wearing a suit and tie walking around downtown Houston right about now. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> that's true, too. It does stress you from time to time. No doubt. Well, uh, you know, I actually think I, I value it more now because I have to wear it less. It used to be a little bit more common for me in my career to dress up in a more formal manner. That now I really look forward to it because I almost never do it. So when I go to Oklahoma next week, I'll be wearing a suit and tie or at least a suit on, on Monday and Tuesday. Cause some of those companies still dress up They're They're still a little bit old school too, but um, Excellent. Ernie, where can people find you? Where can they find C smart and uh, who should be looking for you? Uh, anybody with ultrasonic meters that they have to take care of in their fleet um, frankly speaking, anybody with ultrasonic meters that are measuring either their uh, uh, their residue gas that they're uh, um, sending off to someplace else or buying it because they're running their power plant or a big industrial user, anybody with those kinds of meters uh, and even Coriolis meters today um, yeah. that have a, a set of diagnostics as well, uh, they should be looking for us to, to make efficient their oversight. Uh, we are a very cost-effective insurance policy against those errors that do occur, and we can correct them very quickly. Uh, there's the old uh, old joke about a guy with uh, two watches uh, has a dispute, and a guy with three watches has a lawsuit. Um, it, it just makes sense. Uh, we tend not to count the overhead of going back and trying to fix errors after they after the fact, after they've occurred and been allowed for a while. So. Those the transmission and storage and, and all the way out to the ends of the bow tie, you know, they should be looking for us. And to answer your question, they should be looking at us, c-smartanalytics.com, um, and uh, they can find us all there, and we're good to go. Well, Ernie, this was a lot of fun, man. I, I appreciate your energy and your passion, and and I'm eager to see where, where C-Smart goes. You know, it hit my radar not too long ago. I love the website. Uh, I think you guys are poised for some success. And and frankly, there's, at least from my perspective, there's not a ton of competition in your space. And I, I don't know if that's because there's just simply a lack of subject matter expertise, if it's expensive to get the product line going. Um, but I think that you guys are well positioned and, and hopefully things continue to move uh, forward in the measurement space for you. So Ernie, my man, thank you for coming on What the Funk. Well, thank you very much, Jerry. It was great to be on the show. <laughs>